joining us for a no holds barred conversation to discuss geopolitics and investment opportunities is Bob Moriarty, the founder of 321 Gold and 321Energy.com. Mr. Moriarty, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to talk to you again. Well, it's great to have you back on the program, sir. We have a lot of ground to cover today. Let's begin our discussion with geopolitics. Bob, you wrote a thought-provoking musing this week that has received a lot of attention on the internet entitled Moriarty's First Law of Unintended Consequences, where you called out the EU, NATO, and the U.S. on their failed policies to weaken Russia and highlighted the repercussions of a boomerang effect on the West. What compelled you to write this piece and why now? Uh, strange enough, and good question. Uh, last week, the EU voted to uh, support a cap on Russian oil that they don't intend to buy. Now, if you think about it, that's pretty stupid. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I, I mean, how do you put a cap on a commodity that you don't intend to buy anyway? It's a foolish thing to do. But especially because of your background, I'm going to point something out that nobody else pointed out. And this is unintended consequences of doing things like the Ukraine war. Okay, do you remember when the Ukrainians sunk the Russian uh, cruiser? I do recall the moment, yes. Okay, you sink the biggest ship the Russians have with one missile using satellite guidance. What have you just done to the 13 aircraft carriers of the United States? All right. I hope I'm not overthinking this, but you've demonstrated the vulnerability of the warships. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's too simple. I mean, the strange thing is, what did Pearl Harbor, what was the unintended consequence of Pearl Harbor regarding battleships? Their susceptibility to air attacks? Exactly. Okay, it proved, you know, there's no defense uh, against aerial weapons. And the strange thing is, and I mean, from a military point of view, this is giant. It means that probably two-thirds of the American defense budget is being spent on weapons that will never work in combat. And when the United States comes to grips with that, and I'll be blunt, I, I mean, I was a Marine for six years, but if you, you got no carrier landing force, you can't use carrier aircraft because you can't get the carriers near enough to the battlefield. It means the Navy's pretty much a waste of time, and the Marine Corps is a total waste of time. This, this Ukrainian war, the unintended consequences are absolutely staggering, and it really doesn't make any difference who wins. However, I will say Polish newspapers are already saying if, if NATO doesn't get involved this week, the war is over. I, I have a credible source, and the Ukrainians have lost 400,000 dead soldiers. Now, that's, that's just absolutely staggering. That is. But the unintended consequences of the EU trying to put a cap on Russian oil, if Putin said, fine, okay, we're not going to sell you the oil, I'm going to just stop producing two or three million barrels a day, the price of oil would go between $200 and $300 a barrel. Now, I went to see some people today 
two weeks before Christmas, I took some gifts to some friends of mine, and two houses that I went to of people that I would call middle class to upper middle class, they literally have turned off their electricity because they can't afford it. So we've done some really foolish things, and the unintended consequences are going to be pretty staggering. You know, you've said a lot here. I want to go back to first what may have been the next Billy Mitchell moment where you just referenced the defense budget and and the Navy here. You know, as crazy as that sounds, that sounded just like Billy Mitchell. Well, let's talk about Billy Mitchell because a lot of your audiences won't remember that. Heavier bombs were now prepared by the armors of the Air Brigade. And the SS Shawmut radioed orders for the new takeoffs. Power men signaled the heavy bombers, and again they displayed the same remarkable precision. But the Joint Board was still unconvinced even when more bombs finally sank the Alabama. Two years later, Billy Mitchell and his men prepared for a new series of battleship bombing tests. This time against the obsolete battle wagons, New Jersey and Virginia. On the deck of the San Mihiel were General Pershing, Admiral Shoemaker, Assistant Secretary of War Davis, and the new Air Chief, General Patrick. The 1923 tests attracted even more widespread public and official attention. The target sat and waited for a 2,000-pound bomb to be dropped from 10,000 feet. The Air Service was learning that a near miss was the body blow that weakened the hull setting up a target for the knockout punch. Mitchell's Air Brigade was becoming more and more expert and could lay those eggs anywhere. A photo plane recorded everything on film. The beginning of the end of a mighty warship victim of precision bombing. Now, I can't remember what year it was. It might, might have been 1924. You can refresh me if, if, if you know what year it was. Uh, Billy Mitchell was a uh, Army Air Corps general, and he said, look, uh, battleships are, are passe because aircraft can sink them. And he, he actually got permission, and they sailed a ship that they would sink anyway, and he sunk it with aircraft with 200 horsepower motors mm -hmm. and 250 pound bombs. And of course, the Japanese understood that and they looked at it in Pearl Harbor. We had our entire battleship force in Pearl Harbor and they all got sunk. The same thing is true of aircraft carriers. You know, aircraft carriers cost $15 billion apiece. The F-35 is a trillion and a half dollar defense budget aircraft that's 15 years late, barely works, can't get parts for, and it's down 55% of the time, and it's just become totally obsolete. So we've got some really staggering things that are going to come out of the Ukraine conflict. I mean, I'll tell you one thing that nobody else but me has figured out. This is the end of NATO period, okay? NATO has tried to do the same thing to Russia 
that they did to Libya. Now, how well did that work in Libya? Libya was the richest country in Africa, and they turned it into a shithouse. Yes, they did. <laughs> you know, going back to Billy Mitchell, I think it was 17 years prior to the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. And one thing incredibly that he predicted was the attack was going to occur on a Sunday. This is basically what Bob Moriarty is saying, and it sounded foolish at the time. I I recall having a conversation with you here the other day as well. What are your thoughts? You referenced the F-35. What about the new B-21 bomber? Well, a, another uh, super expensive piece, uh, a, a toy that'll never work in combat. Here's what's important to understand. The greatest uh, Air Force fighter pilot in history was named John Boyd, and he studied the whole tactics thing. Uh, John Boyd was to the Air Force what Billy Mitchell was to the Army. And, and he said, you know, you've got all these piece of crap airplanes that, that barely fly, okay, and will never work in combat. The, uh, the F-111, same thing, okay. They brought that over to Vietnam. It was a total piece of crap. The interesting thing is that, like Billy Mitchell, Boyd said during peacetime, you get complicated and expensive equipment, and during wartime, you get cheap and effective equipment. Now, you could see what's going on in Ukraine, and it's staggering to me. You know I was an observation pilot. I was flying the F-4 first and then the bird dog, and I had, I think, 700 missions in the bird dog. We were going out searching for targets. When I was a kid, I remember reading something in the encyclopedia, and it took 500,000 bullets to kill one enemy during World War II, and I thought, that's a lot of ammunition, okay? <laughs> you got you to be shooting for a long time. And I thought, what, what an incredible waste that is. I have seen videos of drones dropping hand grenades on Ukrainian positions from maybe 100 meters high. Uh, the hand grenade might cost 15 bucks, and the drone can fly back to where it came from in the first place. When you could start killing your enemy for $15, the whole economic picture of war has changed. That's a really scary tactic. But this, this war, from, from a military point of view, is going to show how wrong NATO, the U.S., uh, the EU have gotten it totally because the tactics and the weapons the Russian or Russians are using are giving them a 10 to 1 advantage in, in a kill ratio, which is just absolutely staggering. They did everything exactly the opposite of how NATO would, would work, and, and it's working. Now, I want to go back to uh, the energy prices that uh, you were referencing, because you have boots on the ground. You're there. David Page from Florida, he has a two-part question for you. How will the sanctions play out, and won't this cause a rerouting of oil and adding cost? And then the follow-on to that, David asks, what will this do to the price of oil in 6 to 12 months? Uh, the first part of the question is really easy to answer, and the answer is yes. Okay, The Russians have made it clear 
that anybody who even voted for that rule, they're not going to sell oil to now or in the future. That's a big deal. And, and the second part of the question, how is this going to affect the price of oil six months to a year from now? I don't think anybody smart enough to answer that. I am very, very apprehensive about any kind of a black swan right now, and, and certainly the Russians uh, reducing Russians and or OPEC reducing oil by uh, one to two to three million barrels a day would would cause the price of oil to skyrocket. I, I think it's time for people to sit back and reflect and say, was this whole Ukrainian war worth getting NATO into Ukraine? I think the answer would be, hell no. We have no interest whatsoever in who runs Ukraine. It is their business and their problem and up to them to solve. Now, sticking with oil and gas, you referenced the Nord Stream pipelines in your latest musing, which have kind of gone away from the mainstream media. Why is it taking so long to determine who is responsible for the attack and who do you believe is responsible? Well, it's a deal. I actually wrote a piece. Did you read the piece? Oh, I did. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's absolutely no question about it. who's running the war in Ukraine. <laughs> well, is that a, who's running the war in Ukraine is the United States. Okay, so whose interest would it be to to destroy the the Nord Stream pipeline? It would be the U.S. Okay, now please don't tell me that Poland or, or the U.K. or Ukraine, those guys don't make any decisions. The United States makes all the decisions. Now, I, I wrote an article and I showed flight paths of aircraft both the P-8 that flew nonstop from the United States and the S-60 helicopters off the Kearsarge. Uh, the funny thing is that's controlled airspace, okay? That's controlled airspace in Europe. You couldn't go out on a ski trip without having permission to do it. So, so the, the Swedes know who did it. The Germans know who did it. The Danish know who did it. The Polish know who did it. The French know who do it. The British know who do it. Why are they keeping it quiet? Well, gee, because you're not supposed to say, by the way, the United States, who said six months in advance that they were going to destroy it, they actually destroyed it. It is not my opinion that the United States destroyed the pipeline. It is an absolute fact, and no one has come up with anything that suggests anything other than that. The reason everybody's being quiet is they don't want to admit the United States committed an act of terror and a, and a war crime. That was a civilian pipeline, and it wasn't a military target. Now, sticking with the unintended consequences here, because, again, you have boots on the ground. We're here in the U.S., most of us. The bombing of the pipeline, what did that do to the energy prices? They went up initially, okay? The, the real issue is... And nobody wants to talk about this. The, the so-called energy crisis is a product of, of excessive stupidity on part of the EU and the United States trying to kill fossil fuels. Okay? And it's, it's utterly irrational. For you to use the so-called green energy, you have to have copper, you have to have silicon, you have to have silver, you have to have nickel. 
and it takes fossil fuel to do that. If you kill a fossil fuel before you have an alternative energy uh, supply in place, yeah. <laughs> that you literally are killing people. Now, there's something that's very important, and I would highly encourage anyone to do a little research into this and prove me right. If you take a graph of the fossil fuel production from 1860, it is absolutely identical to a graph of the increase in population since 1860. Now, what we forget is that farmers today produce 10 times more food than farmers from 80 years ago. We are far more efficient today because of the use of fossil fuels. The whole climate change thing is absolute rubbish. It was made up. It was fiction. The people who made it up know they're lying about it, know that they're what they're really talking about is depopulation. They want to kill off as many people as they can, and they're succeeding. I mean, uh, here's what's funny. Uh, the guy behind uh, FTX, how can he not be in prison? Seriously. Yeah, the that's a great stole, question. <laughs> the guy stole $8 billion of, of investor money. How could he not be in handcuffs? Likewise, how can Fauci not be in handcuffs? Now, he was sued by the attorney general of two different states, and he had to sit through a deposition here a week ago. And he was asked, did you fund uh, the coronavirus at the Wuhan labs? And he said, well, I, I can't really be sure. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. If you did, you did. And if you didn't, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What do you mean you didn't remember? The, the whole COVID thing, 100% of what we were told was a lie. Not 99%, 100%. It was a bad flu that was created by the United States and funded by the United States and released deliberately from Wuhan. Okay. And the whole purpose of it was to justify the so-called vaccines, which are literally suicide shots, and the devastation and the millions of people who have already been killed by those shots is absolutely amazing. And the government's still pushing the shots. Yeah, that has that has a lot of at least at least half the nation shaking the head, if not most of the nation. But there, there's a, there's the opposite spectrum that says the government is looking out for your best interest. But as you as you just pointed out, the unintended consequences <laughs> of government. <laughs> but they're not looking out for your best interest. COVID had nothing to do with health. COVID was a deliberate plan, a plot, a conspiracy to take control of people. The whole the flu in the first place, the masks, the lockdowns, the, the social distancing, the vaccines, the, the, the vaccine passports. It was all about control. It wasn't about health. If it was about health, they would have promoted ivermectin. They would have promoted HCQ. They would have promoted vitamin D. Most of the people who died from COVID, and a lot of people did die from COVID. I'm not going to deny that. The flu kills people every year, but 60% of the people who died had severe vitamin D deficiency. The United States should have gone on a, a gigantic program 
give everybody vitamin D, get their vitamin D level up. How many people know that? The answer is not damn many. Because, I I mean, Twitter's finally come out and said, oh, by the way, everything about the 2020 election was fraud on the part of the Democrats. You know, we were lying about everything because the FBI and the CIA told us to. You bring up a lot of compelling points. One that I just uh, thought of the other day, and it goes back to my conversation with with David Page from Florida. He and I were having a one-on-one discussion. If you consider that... You know, your remarks regarding COVID aren't factual. It's just, uh, you know, some something down the rabbit hole conspiracy theory. How do we explain that in the United States, all of the students that attend all the, you know, secondary schools, elementary school, that they all had laptops? That had to be pre-planned, in my opinion, because if you have supply chain constraints, number one. But number two, how do you get laptops to every single student basically in the United States? Something had to be pre-planned, and I don't know if anyone's ever brought that to, you know, I don't know if heard that brought to anyone's attention, but I, no one ever, to me, has brought up the fact of how did we get all these laptops, and then where did they go now? But uh, but I digress on where they are now, is how did they get to all the students in such uh, a short frank, period of time? Yeah, frankly, I don't know, and I have never spent any time thinking about it. However, I will say uh, a laptop for a student now is just as important as, as a pad and pen. You cannot, you can't get an education now without a laptop. But when they were locked down, the, the real issue is how did they get laptops at home? Yes, and, that's my point. Yeah, <laughs> that's my point. During the yeah. during well, the, the lockdown, government, the government financed it. I mean, what most people don't know is when people died in the hospital, the government financed them to do that. Okay, the hospitals were paid between thirty-nine thousand and a hundred thousand dollars. The hospitals were pretty close to deliberately killing people uh, to get the money from the government. Now, whoever heard of the government paying uh, for people to die? You know, if you die of cancer, the government doesn't pay for it. If you die of, of, of heart disease, the government doesn't pay for it. If you have diabetes and they cut your leg off, the government doesn't pay for it. How come they paid for COVID? Yeah. Again, point after point, if you just open up your eyes and begin to question, and that's one thing I've always learned about you, you or you've taught me over the years, is learn to question. <laughs> and speaking of a question here, uh, going back to Ukraine, the big elephant in the room, nuclear war. How close are we? I I don't think we are at all. I, I think Putin is 10 times smarter than people realize. And he understands. Uh, let's talk about the, the Biden White House. Who's running the Biden White, White House? Well, I know who's not. <laughs> okay, good point. Because you're absolutely correct. Joe Biden is not running the White House. I mean, uh, Hunter Biden probably has more to do with running the White House than Joe Biden does. But the fact of the matter is that those three neocons, and, and they're very much, they're the ones driving for a war with Russia. And they would love to have a nuclear war. And, and Putin's smart enough not to fall for that trap. So I, I don't think we're at risk for a nuclear war. However, I will say you've got some people in control in NATO who understand that 
they've got to do something or NATO's going to disappear. The guy who's in charge of NATO has said, look, you know, it's the end of the line. We have got to support Ukraine. There is no end game for NATO. That's what nobody understands. When I was in Vietnam and people were talking about, you know, we need to kill all these rotten commies, I would ask them, okay, if we're going to win the war, what's it going to look like? And nobody could ever answer that question. Now, if you can't explain how you're going to win a battle, then you're not going to win the battle. Mm -hmm. And NATO has no end game for Ukraine other than we want to destroy Russia. Well, if they destroy Russia, how much oil and natural gas is Europe going to get next year? And the answer is zero. Okay. I'm the only guy who's ever mentioned this. Uh, Europe needs Russia, but Russia doesn't need Europe. The the unintended consequences of Ukraine is it's going to destroy the EU, it's going to destroy the Euro, it's going to destroy NATO, and it's going to destroy the United States. I mean, certainly, I, I think you're well aware of it. There are dozens of really serious writers now who are coming out and saying, you know, by the way, the world's economy is about to blow sky high, you know, with two trillion dollars and or a hundred trillion dollars in derivatives that are due this year. We are on the the thinnest of thin ice, and and you know we're we're in a, a train loaded with nitroglycerin going down at forty five degree slopes, and the brakes don't work. <laughs> well, moving on to investments, you referenced derivatives, Bob. You have years of wisdom and experience, and you've enriched thousands of people throughout the world with your work on 321gold.com, and you've written several books outlining your investment thesis as a contrarian. Give us your thoughts on the current state of the natural resource base. Oh, absolutely no question. Uh, and I, I wrote a really good piece. There's been so much good crap to write about lately that's been absolutely, <laughs> well, not talking about it. It's really good shit. Uh, Silver hit its low on September 1st. Gold hit its low on September 28th. And, and the XAU and HUI hit their low on September 28th. And if you look at uh, gold versus the HUI, gold versus the XAU, you see very clearly that uh, that's when gold bottomed. It tested the bottom a couple of more times. But on November 20. Fourth, the uh, for the PSLV. This is the spot silver. What's it called? Uh, it is the, a trust. Yes. Yeah, a silver trust. Uh, it's a spot silver deal. The PSLV. It was had the most negative uh, disc or the biggest discount to the price of silver. In the last two years, going back to below March of 2020, I mean, it's absolutely amazing to me that the the sentiment on silver was lower three months after the bottom. The one of the things that I, I'm too cheap to pay for a chart. Uh, I I would love to see a chart of the silver open interest, but I think the 
contracts of open interest on silver are lower than they've been in 20 years, 122,000 contracts. And, and that's a really big deal. From a contrarian point of view, it, it's ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and people say they don't, read, uh, they don't ring a bell. The bullshit, they don't read, ring a bell. If you listen, it's dinging. So I, I think with both gold and silver, and of course I talked about a, a black swan, any kind of black swan right now, uh, would would absolutely blow the lid off of uh, gold and silver. Now, everyone wants to know, which metals are you buying right now and why? Uh, because I'm in Europe, unfortunately, gold. Uh, you have to pay a premium for silver, and you have to pay that duty on it. But you can buy uh, British gold coins and French gold coins at, at literally virtually no premium whatsoever. So I'm not saying that's the best buy. I still think uh, platinum and silver are the best buy if you ignore taxes. And as a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a licensed representative to buy and sell physical precious metals through Miles Franklin Precious Metals Investments, which is the only online precious metals company that is licensed and bonded, period. A-plus rating, over $6 billion in sales, going on 34 years of business, and we've never had a single customer complaint. Give me a call at 855-505-1900 or email maurice at milesfranklin.com. Now, let's talk about some resource stocks that uh, have your attention. Um, and in particular, speaking of those, before we get to specific ones, which metals in the natural resource space, besides precious metals, have your attention? Uh, I don't like any of them. Interesting. And why is that? Uh, to the extent that if you go back to after 1929, when the Depression got seriously started, uh, all of the base metals uh, got absolutely creamed. And I mean absolutely creamed. Everything that has gone up in price because of this free money is going to crash. And while I'm extremely positive on the precious metals, I'm neutral to negative on lithium, copper, cobalt, uh, nickel, you know, uh, they're they're not necessarily going to go up. I I totally the whole electric vehicle is rubbish. The whole wind turbine thing is rubbish. The whole solar thing is rubbish. From an economic point of view, they just don't work. And and people have just pumped these commodities up to absurd levels. And I think at the very least they will have to correct. Well, the current market is a contrarian delight. Let's get your thoughts on some companies that have your interest right now and why, beginning in South Africa. Let's begin with DimeCore Mining, led by Dean Taylor, and visit the flagship Crone Endora at Venetia Project, which is adjacent to De Beers and has just announced a 121% increase in the total carrots sold quarter over quarter. The stock price is currently $0.18. Cents. Bob, why is Dimecore Mining the definition of undervalued? Because of their debt. And what else? There's many virtues here with Dimecore Mining. I know it's more than just debt. Yeah, <laughs> uh, 
I was waiting for you to react to that. Okay, here's the key. When you're going into a depression and when you believe that that currencies are going to collapse, what do you want to do, okay, basically? Well, you want to own... You want to own commodities? No, no, no. You right. want to owe money. Well, correct. <laughs> okay. And, and the key is, the strange thing is, I looked at the company. Uh, I think they're getting $233 a carat, which is twice as high as the average. They have increased the production dramatically. All of these things are good. However, they had to borrow a lot of money to actually get it to production. I looked at it and I thought, you know, under normal circumstances, that would look like something that's very dangerous to do. But if you remember the book that we talked about, written by the German from 100 years ago, mm -hmm. if you know you're going into a depression and the prices of everything is going to collapse, you want to owe as much money as possible. And the strange thing is the value of the diamonds are going to go up but but the price of the, the loan is going to go down because they're going to pay it off with cheap dollars. Yeah, it's definitely smart. And by the way, they have two very important strategic partners. That is De Beers and Tiffany. They have a, uh, what, a 26 million market cap, if I'm not, or no, correction, a 20 million market cap, close to it. But they have 100 million in development. They're producing and they're cash flowing. You don't find that too often at 18 cents. Oh, it's 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 one of those things, and, and strange enough, and this goes back to some of what we were talking about before, contrary and delight. There are hundreds of extraordinary companies now selling literally for peanuts, and that that's that's going to absolutely change. Uh, do you remember the story on Doggy Coin? Oh, I recall it being in the news about a year ago and I don't hear about it now, but I recall your okay. comments about it many times. <laughs> well, a guy comes up and says, Hey, you know, I'm going to come up with a new Bitcoin replacement. I'm going to call it doggy coin. And the symbol for doggy coin was a dog. They ran the price of doggy coin, the market cap of doggy coin up to $89 billion. I'm shaking my head right now. Okay. Okay, now, doggy coin was a fraud. It is a fraud. There is nothing of value there that doesn't exist in 50 other frauds. However, when when the, the chumps who have more, more dollars and cents uh, start throwing money at things, uh, prices go crazy. Now... Uh, all these guys who hate me because I think that Bitcoin and all a thousand other variations of Bitcoin is total fraud have ignored the fact that two trillion dollars of value that, that people used to have. Hey, look at my statement. I got two trillion dollars. It's disappeared. It went to money heaven. Uh, it's two point two trillion dollars disappeared. 
And the rest of it's all going to disappear eventually. It's an electronic beanie baby. Guys hate me for saying that, but it's true. <laughs> all right. Well, going back to Diamond Core Mining, the ticker symbol is DMI, and the website is www.dimecoremining.com. Moving on to Fiji, where Line One Metals is advancing the 100% owned flagship Tuvatu Gold Project, led by Walter Burkhoff, which is an alkaline gold deposit that continually produces super high-grade results with each press release. The stock price is currently 82 cents. Tell us more. I own more of that stock than any other stock that I own, and I think I'm down about 40%, maybe 50%. I don't care, okay? Uh, here's what happened. They're going to go into production third or fourth quarter of next year. And they need X million dollars to actually finish the mill and do everything that they've got to do. And Wally announced a placement at, at just the wrong time. Now, it wasn't his fault. He had to do it. However, it whacked the stock big time. But, God, what an incredible opportunity. There is an identical mine to uh, line one, 40 kilometers away on the same trend that has produced 7 million ounces and it has 4 million ounces in a resource. Uh, the, the amazing thing to me, I mean, it's a zero-brainer. Uh, in, in the Pacific rim of fire there are a dozen uh, gold mines that are anywhere from 10 to 25 million ounces um, it's an alkaline deposit and alkaline deposits are very big it's identical to the deposit 40 kilometers away and the companies sell it for peanuts I mean it's absolutely absurd but this is and I've used this term before this is your opportunity to make a retirement. You know, and sticking with line one, before we leave Fiji, for someone who's not familiar with the mining jurisdiction, how friendly is uh, Fiji to mining? It is the most friendly mining jurisdiction in the world, period. All right. Now, the ticker for Line One Metals is LIO, and the website is www.liononemetals.com. Leaving Fiji, let's go to British Columbia and visit Dolly Varden Silver, which hosts the flagship Kitsalt Valley Project, which is advancing one of the largest high grade undeveloped precious metal assets in BC's Golden Triangle, which is led by one of the young rising stars in the space, Sean Kun Kun. The stock price is currently 73 cents. What has you excited about Dolly Varden? Uh, purely coincidentally, I wrote about them. About two weeks ago, isn't it? Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. And the stock was 58 cents a share. And it shot up to... 83? 83, I believe. Yeah. Uh which, of course, made me feel real good. But immediately after I released my piece, he came out with extraordinary drill results. So everybody who had read my piece was prepped to look for good results, and he came up with good results. I, I can't remember how many 
million ounces of silver. And, and you know, I apologize for this. I should have been better prepared. But I think they've got 150 million ounces of silver. It, that, that company is just absurdly underpriced and, and with the sentiment being as absurd as it is with silver, uh, that that's probably the premier silver project, silver company in the world. And they have more pending assays coming out. They've just doubled the mineralization there on the Wolfane to 750 meters. Uh, and again, here's an important note about uh, Dolly Varden, an 8% float. I mean... They've got some of the biggest investors out there in the world. Hecla is right next to them. Uh, a number of virtues, a number of catalysts. And Sean Kunkun, got to tip my hat off to him. He's just done an exceptional job with leading the company. Uh, I have to totally agree. And it, it's been very rewarding for shareholders. And when you see something as stupid as the crash into September, it went from... Uh, let me see. It went from 85 cents in March to 35 cents at the end of September. And I say, you know, when you got a 50% decline in something that's as substantial as that and is advancing daily, uh, but it's an opportunity. And, and here's the key. There are 50 or 100 other companies out there in a similar situation. I mean, Dolly Varden is not a one-trick one pony. There are all kinds of little horses out there just waiting for somebody to ride them. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Well, the uh, ticker for Dolly Varden Silver, uh, silver that is, is DV, and the website is dollyvardensilver.com. Finally, heading to Arizona. And what could be a wild card of epic proportions is Silver Bullet Mines, led by John Carter, hosting the Buckeye Silver Mine, which is where the silver bullets were produced for the TV show, The Lone Ranger. Now, Silver Bullet Mines became public a year ago, and the share price rose from 30 cents to 59 cents when 45, in its first 45 days, that is, and the stock price is currently at 18 cents. Silver Bullet Mines owns all of the equipment, including a 125 metric ton per day processing facility, which, is, which became operational in late August. But something wasn't right with the 10-ounce silver dory bars, and they discovered a pleasant surprise in the tailings, which could be a game changer. What can you share with us? It wasn't really in the tailings. Here's what the plan was. And I went to see that project uh, a dozen years ago. And this is long before John got, Carter got involved in it. He was connected to the people who had it before. And I said they actually had three different mines there. So the plan was we're going to build a small mine and mill. We're going to actually go into production without any resource, without any 43101. We're going to produce silver dory bars, which I think is a great idea. Investors totally agreed with me. So they they get all the metal and they, they throw it in the furnace and they try to melt it and they try to pour a bar. And it's not a bar. 
okay, it's kind of a chunk of metal. I said, well, that didn't work. You know, what's wrong here? And they believe that they've actually got PGMs, platinum and, and uh, palladium in it, which require extremely high temperatures, and silver, I think, melts at like 16 or 1700 degrees and gold melts I think at 1800 degrees something like that don't hold me to it but uh, gold and silver melts at fairly low temperatures relatively speaking and the PGMs don't melt at, at low temperatures however they're much more valuable so they've gone out and they've taken a bunch of assays that tend to indicate uh, they've got PGMs that nobody ever knew and nobody ever tested for. And I, I have talked to them. I actually participated in a big private placement with them about six weeks ago. And I said, look, what you have got to do is you've got to have a third-party verification. Okay, I want somebody totally independent of the lab that you're using now. And I, I want those numbers verified. You verify those numbers. I'm going to write it up to make you guys look like heroes. But I don't want some nonsense numbers uh, from some lab that just comes up with rubbish. Uh, they haven't finished those assays yet because it takes a long time to do the assays. That's a big sleeper. Here's the deal. The company is actually 16 and a half cents closing on Friday. It has an $11 million market cap right now. And should they be tapping into PGMs, they could go from 11 million to 100 million literally overnight. Uh, I hope that happens because I own a bunch of stock. Uh, however, I want to see verifications by a third party, uh, totally independent lab first. But they've also got a big project up in Idaho, and they want to do the same thing. They want to go into production up there, and they want to ship the ore down to Arizona and process it down there. I, I think it's a great story, but right now there's too many questions, and, and investors are very nervous about those kind of deals. Uh, that's a stock that was 40-something cents. Uh, oh, not that long ago. Yeah, it's 46 cents in in April, okay, and it got down to, geez, I don't know, 12 or 13 cents here recently. Mm -hmm. The jury is out for Silver Bullet Mines, and that's why we reference a wild card. But again, it could be one of epic proportions, as you referenced. We're, we're talking about a 10-bagger potential here. We're not saying it's going to happen, ladies and gentlemen, but if things are confirmed on the assays, who knows where the stock price can go here. And the ticker for Silver Bullet Mines is SBMI. And the website is www.silverbulletmines.com. And full disclosure, all the companies that we've referenced here today are advertisers for both 321gold and provenimprobable.com. And we are shareholders. In closing. Actually, actually Silver Bullet not is not. Advertiser. Silver Bullet is not. That's correct. <laughs> you beat me to it, sir. <laughs> All right, in close. Nice. So I'm sorry, sir. Go ahead. I said, nice try. <laughs> in closing, Bob, I have before me a video of you flying under the Eiffel Tower, I believe back in 1981. Give us the story behind this flight. 
uh, it's actually March 31st of 1984, and I realized soon after that that I should have waited one day. I, I was in Paris for an air race that was going from Paris to Libreville in Gabon, and the first prize in, in the air race was an airplane, and the guy that I was flying with uh, was head of Apple in, in France, so I, I was going to get the airplane, and unfortunately, we had some uh, engine problems. Uh, south of Portugal, and we had to make an emergency landing in Faro, and uh, flew the airplane back up to Paris, and I was in between my test wife and my real wife, uh, <laughs> and a French girlfriend, and I will be absolutely candid, and any women listen to this, close your ears, uh, every man should have a French girlfriend at least once in his life. I mean, they're just wonderful. But in, in any case, we were sitting around at a sidewalk cafe, and we had, we had drank a bottle of wine. And it may have been two bottles of wine. <clears throat> and and uh, the guy that, who was the head of the French Herald Club said, you know, Bob, my opponent is going to get a lot of publicity. We need to do something to help me out. And I said, okay. And he said, let's do some city to city records. We'll go Paris to London. We'll go London to Paris. We'll go Paris to Stockholm. And we'll go Paris to Rome. I said, okay. But every one of those is going to cost you $1,000. Oh, well, we don't want to do that then. <laughs> I, I got an idea. That was after another bottle of wine. Uh, let's fly under the Eiffel Tower. I said, now, everybody thinks that it's been done, but... Uh, Nah, I'm not interested. He said, no, 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 it actually hasn't been done. And I said, really? He said, yeah, nobody's ever done it. I said, wow, that's cool. And so he said, okay, here's the deal. You do it, and, and you take the blame for it, and I'll ride with you in the airplane because you're a lot better pilot than I am. And then six months later, I'll tell everybody I did it. And I thought... <clears throat> That's an interesting approach. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in the, the the video, which is available on YouTube, you can actually hear me transmitting to him, and he clearly is not in the airplane. So, so we make the flight. I, I, I was landing on carriers when I was 19 years old, uh, flying through the Eiffel Tower. I could have done that sober. So... <laughs> I, I go back to uh, Paris for another air race uh, a year later, and I go over to his apartment, and he had taken one room of his apartment. He had every single photograph that all of these 13 photographers had taken, and he had a loop. He had a video loop of, of the airplane flying under the Eiffel Tower again and again and again and again, and I looked at it, and I thought, you know, that is really, really cool. And then I looked closer, and I realized that there was something missing. And I couldn't quite come to grips with what it was. I didn't know what it was that was missing. And I realized what was missing was me. Oh. <laughs> so what he had done, okay, he, <laughs> oh, no. he 
have people come over to his place and say, hey, baby, would you like to see the flight under the Eiffel Tower? And, of course, all of them would say, oh, God, yeah, let me do that. Let me take my panties off. But uh, And then he would show them the video, but, of course, I wasn't in the video. So he kind of led them to believe that uh, he did it, but he didn't actually do it. All right, now I have to ask you, where did you land? Uh, and, and that's that's a good question. Uh, obviously, I had a photographer with me who worked for Sigma News Agency, and we had a dozen photographers on the ground, and we had the whole thing recorded on three-quarter-inch video from inside the airplane. So after I made the flight, I landed a little dirt strip north of Paris. I dropped him off. And then I shot off to uh, Shannon, Ireland. So by the time the French actually figured something had happened, uh, I, I was sitting in the bar in Shannon having a beer. <laughs> what a story. What a story. <laughs> well, I thought it was fitting that I share the video as you just released your newest book entitled No Guts, No Glory. Bob, this book... You've had it in draft mode well over a decade. What compelled you to finally write No Guts, No Glory? Well, I, I, I actually wrote that 20 or 30 years ago. Okay. The, the strange thing is I had it in paper format years and years and years ago. And I've done a number of books since then. And I was just being lazy. Uh you know, there's no particular reason for it, but uh, I, I I thought about it. I thought, you know, that was kind of an interesting book. I I, I do something, and I would highly encourage anybody who's ever tempted to write a book. Uh, it, it's really easy to do, and you absolutely should do it. And the funny thing is, the part of your brain that writes a book is not the same part of the brain that actually reads the book. So when I pick up a book that I wrote, well, when I write an article and look at it six months later, I'm reading the article thinking, God, this guy's really got it. This is a great article. Now I look at the title and find out it's my, my article. <laughs> but the, the book is very interesting. It's about a little tiny area of aviation of people. Uh, the United States used to produce uh, most of you know, 90% of the general aviation airplanes in the world. And we were producing in 1979 18,000 airplanes. And, and we were exporting 10% of them. Uh, it was a really big deal for the U.S. economy. And uh, I, I was there during the glory days where the price of, of aircraft was going down. Well, actually, the value of the dollar was going down so fast that you could buy an airplane, you could keep it for 10 years, and you could sell it for more than you paid for it. So it, it was an interesting time doing interesting things, but it was the world's most dangerous occupation. And of course, I, I set about 15 air records that I was in four races and won all four of them and flew under the Eiffel Tower. And I flew a guy across the Atlantic standing on top of an airplane. I, I got involved in some really interesting crap. So uh, if anyone is even remotely interested in aviation, they won't find it a very interesting book, and I think it's 20 bucks. Well, sir, where can we buy a copy? Uh, from Amazon. 
And again, the title of the book is No Guts, No Glory. In closing, sir, what did I forget to ask? Uh, We had kind of casually mentioned derivatives, and we didn't get into derivatives, but there are some really dangerous parts of the world's economy now, and derivatives are absolutely part of it. Uh, Things like FTX, uh, the $100 trillion in derivatives that have to be paid this year, the 52% decline in, in uh, UK bond rates. There are some extremely dangerous things going on financially now, and, and people absolutely have to um, educate themselves. I mean, don't go believe me or anybody else. Educate yourself, figure out what the facts are, and prepare yourself for tough times, because we have tough times coming. And on that note, Mr. Moriarty, it's been an absolute delight. Wishing you the absolute best, sir. Okay, thank you. It's always a pleasure, Maurice. It's an honor, sir. The information presented on Proven and Probable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.